Welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. I'm your host, Ben Schneider, and this episode is a recording of the 2019 Hicks Lecture in Economic History. The lecture is named in honor of Sir John Hicks, who was Drummond Professor of Political Economy at Oxford from 1952 to 1965. This year's Hicks Lecture was Professor Dora Costa from the University of California, Los Angeles. Professor Costa received her PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and taught in the economics department at MIT before moving to UCLA. She is director of the Cohort Studies Working Group for the National Bureau of Economic Research, associate director for the California Center for Population Research, and has been a member of the executive committee of the American Economic Association. Professor Costa is a leading expert in health economics and the economics of retirement. Her publications include The Evolution of Retirement on American Economic History, 1888-1998, which won the Alice Hansen Jones Book Prize from the Economic History Association, and Heroes and Cowards, The Social Face of War, authored with Michael Kahn. Her Hicks lecture discussed how the privation suffered by northern POWs during the American Civil War had an impact on the health outcomes of their children. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So whenever people ask me why I do economic history, my standard line is the past is still with us. It's with us in terms of institutions, which are very long-lived. It's also with us in terms of the people. If you think about early life experiences, they shape the later trajectories of cohorts. But there are also all these ghosts of past generations. So through culture, through socioeconomic status, and also through genes. Now, if we think about the world we have lost, it was a world where we had very little control over our own environment. It was a world of seasonality. So Simon Kuznets in the 1920s believed that seasonality was such a big problem that the government had to take a hand in it and try and solve the issue of seasonality. And a lot of the seasonality shows up in food shocks. This was also a world of epidemic disease shocks and various income and wealth shocks which now for which now there is much more protection. We're all familiar with low means for health outcomes. This is life expectancy in Sweden, age 10, age 0, age 65, age 85, and uh, here you can see age 65 and age 85 slightly bigger scale and you can see sort of a, a big jump after uh, roughly 1950 and age 85, it's really after 1970 or so. And it's Sweden here, just because Sweden has really good data. If we think we're familiar with some of the trends also in men's heights, so basically very low, and then we have sort of a Starting with the 18, roughly in 1890, there is an increase in height over time as everyone becomes taller. Now, what also was true in the past was very high variance in terms of health outcomes. So if you look within families, looking at brothers, this is looking at adult height correlations. This is white populations. So men in the Union Army, correlation of 0.39. If you go to World War II, correlation of 0.46. If you go to a 1959-1968 cohort, correlation of 0.49. So what was happening to brothers who were born in 1812-1844, well, they were subject to a lot of shocks, disease, I think in particular, and you have this increase in variance. You observe some of the same patterns if you're looking at sibling correlations at birth. So this is looking at birth weights, Johns Hopkins University Hospital, 1895-1935 birth cohort, and you can compare this with, uh, say, the 1985, 1997 cohort, <coughs> where it's going from 0.47 to 
And similarly, you also see an increase in correlations if you're looking at, say, gestation weeks. So how did we get control over our health environment? Well, <coughs> income helps, but there were also lots of innovations in food production and in transporting the food. So in the US, a lot of it uh, started to become shipped from California to the East Coast. And during the Great Depression, uh, consumption of orange juice actually increased. Uh, public health is the other big factor. and there's modern medicine as well. But we cannot control the past. And there is this persistence of poor health and socioeconomic status within families, which we all would like to explain. If we think about the early life experiences of current cohorts, there is a very large literature looking at shocks in utero and later life outcomes, where the outcomes have been health, they've been education, and they've been socioeconomic status. And here, a lot of the emphasis has been on mothers. If you want to go back, so but what about previous generations? Well, we know a lot less about shocks in previous generations, and we know even less about what is the role of fathers in all of this? One of the difficulties in studying the role of past gener generations is we do need not just intergenerational, but ideally we'd also like multi-generational multi data sets. I'm only going to present results from intergenerational data sets. I'm not up to the multi-generational part yet. And the other thing, of course, that we also need to get enough power is we want a really big shock. I'm going to be looking at the US Civil War. Why the US Civil War? There was a representative population that was serving because this was such a large war. It was also a really big shock in terms of disease. This is before anyone knew how to handle disease in terms of uh, wounds as well. It's, generals always fight the last war. The last war was the Napoleonic War. So, but by the time we get to the US Civil War, the range of small arms had increased dramatically. So the tactics of the Napoleonic Wars led to a lot of casualties. And a lot of men also had truly horrific POW experiences. In addition, this also was the first cohort to reach age 65 in the 20th century, so another good reason to study. The US Civil War is very important in US history because it's considered the second American Revolution. So it's finishing up the business of the first American Revolution which left the question of slavery unsettled. It was also the deadliest US <coughs> So 16% of Union Army soldiers died, 24% of Confederates died, and 7% of men were ever imprisoned. And in terms of non-mortal battlefields wounds, it's 13%. And of course, if it's any injury or wound, such as being kicked by a horse, of which there's quite a few, or any other thing like that, you're up to 21%. Now, <coughs> what I'm going to be talking about today comes from several projects. One was a project that was started by Bob Fogel, which was uh, early indicators of later work levels, disease, and death. And this project was started in 1992. And this was to understand retirement and older age mortality and morbidity. And one small project which I started up was trying to understand the transmission of wartime stress across the life cycle. What I've now sort of pushed 
this early indicators project into has been trying to understand the intergenerational transmission of stress. What are the Union Army samples? There's the original Union Army sample, which is roughly 40,000 men in 330 companies. There's also a separate sample, which I won't talk about, which consists of the colored troops. There's another sample, which consists of men from urban areas. Again, I won't talk about that. Uh, these samples are downloadable. If you go to uadata.org, you can play around with them. And there's also an Anders sample of Anderson survivors to 1900, of roughly 1,000 men. And what I'm going to be doing in this talk is I'm going to be using a sample of Andersonville survivors, and I'm going to be using the sample from the original, a sample from the original Union Army. What do these companies come from? Well, you get military records where you have the whole company that's collected for the original Union Army sample. That's not true for Andersonville sample, though. It's, uh, and in addition, there's a collection of pension records. The men who served became, were eligible for a very generous pension. Now, and because of the pension, we know a lot of details about these individuals. A very high fraction of eligible veterans are on the rolls by 1900. The military and pension data are one data sets. There's also a separate record of examining surgeons who worked with the pension bureau. This is what some of the military muster rolls looked like. These are transcriptions of the original muster records. And uh, so here you'll have someone like Jeremiah Bigelow, who is not in my sample because he died of wounds incurred in action. But there was an army of clerks after the war who transcribed all of these records. It turned out to be quite a dangerous job. They were all working in Ford's theater where Lincoln was assassinated because there was so much paper in there, the floor caved in, killing a couple of clerks. This is a declaration for an invalid pension where it's, uh, he says that he was not treated in a hospital, he was enrolled as a farmer, and uh, he's been in the military and uh, service sort of, uh, since June 21st, 1861. And here, this is Lucian Barker. He was uh, from the colored troops, and he's asking for a pension for an enlargement on right shoulder, blind in the right eye, and the right arm is nearly useless. So these records continue. You can see, was it accepted? Was it rejected? And this is a sample of an examining surgeon's records. So yes, doctors had bad handwriting back then as well. And it continues with the examining pension. Now, their main data, other main data sources that are used here are going to be the census. So there's going to be linkage through to 1850-1860 census. For the sample I'm working with, it's they're going to be linked through all available censuses from 1850 through to 1940, except for 1890, which was lost in a fire. And the best linkage rates are going to be for 1900. For most men, very little is going to be known about their post-war experience unless they were on the pension. The types of research I've been doing have been on retirement, on social networks, and on health. And I'm going to be talking about the health part. If, what are the intergenerational samples? Well, the intergenerational samples consist of the veterans, the uh, children of the veterans, 
and uh, the mothers of the children. And these, everyone has been linked to death records and to publicly available census records. The sample is restricted to all veterans who survived to 1900, and there is a POW oversample. So this gives me almost 2,000 veterans and almost 9,000 children, non-POWs, 8,500 veterans and 4,545,000 children from the original Union Army data. And the types of shocks I can look at are going to be XPOW status, which was accompanied by acute starvation for a short period of time. I can also look at wounds, which would be permanent disability. For this talk, I'm going to focus on XPOWs. I think all, it's much more interesting, and there's much more I can do with the data. Because of the POW oversample, I just have much more power. So today's talk is going to be about XPOW trauma. And a lot of the results are going to be from a proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences USA paper. And I'm also will be presenting some new results. So I'm going to be looking at, is paternal trauma transmitted to the next generation? We know that in utero is a critical period, and there is evidence that maternal stress is transmitted. There's evidence both for famines. The Dutch hunger winter studies are particularly good here. There's also evidence that uh, psychological stress matters too, so fears of terrorism. But what about the fathers? The evidence is mixed. The samples are small. So in terms of knowing about the fathers, the original study was done with uh, over Calix, Sweden, which is remote area of Sweden, which would be cut off. So local harvest shocks mattered a lot. And based on the sample, there is transmission of, of uh, one generation of men to their sons and then to their grandsons, and also among women to their daughters and to their granddaughters. But transmission of these shocks is sex-specific. There's also evidence now from a larger sample that's looking at uh, the Uppsala multi-generational study in Sweden. And there too, the big shocks are harvest shocks. And here these samples are interested both in was there overfeeding and also was there underfeeding. And the focus in these samples has been not has been on the pre-puberty period as a particularly critical period. There are many potential mechanisms for the transmission of uh, any type of paternal health shocks. Socioeconomic is an obvious one. It's uh, men in poor health might have uh, lower incomes, fewer resources. Fewer resources in turn lead to poor child health and uh, lower investments in education. There could also be various uh, cultural and psychological pathways that are operating. So a traumatized father might vent uh, his trauma on his children. Family structure could be affected. Children might be less likely to be married. They might be less likely to leave home. There could also be issues through marriage selection. So if you have been through a horrific POW experience, well, maybe because you're permanently scarred, you end up making a worse marriage match once you come out of the war. There are also possibilities of biological pathways. So biological pathways would be mutations to DNA of sperm. There could be viruses or prions in seminal fluid. And there could also be epigenetic imprinting, which is sex-specific. So what is epigenetics? And I'm going to spend some time on epigenetics because ultimately, after trying to eliminate all of the other 
hypotheses. I'm going to argue the only thing that is left is epigenetics, and everything is the most consistent with epigenetics. So this is going to be a proof by elimination, which some people don't like, but uh, this is, I think, sort of uh, the best one can do given in human populations, given the data that we have. So this is a strand of DNA. And with epigenetics, it's uh, you're switching a gene on or off. And what you might see here is there might be some uh, evidence of methylation in the DNA. There might be some histone modifications, and you could also even have changes in chromatin structure as well. But one can just think of this as things get switched on and off. So ideally, what should happen is during an early conception, the slate should be wiped clean and everything should be reprogrammed. However, we're now coming to understand that things don't always get reprogrammed. Some things remain. And the question is then, what happens when this reprogramming is not thorough and what determines the, how thorough the reprogramming is? There does appear to be an interaction effect between uh, the epigenetic effect, let's say an epigenetic effect that goes through the father and the intrauterine environment. So how well-nourished is the mother? So epigenetic marks tell proteins and cells just how do you process this DNA? And why is this set specific? Well, one explanation might be if you're going from father to son to grandson, it's carried on the Y chromosome. With the mother, the X chromosome can be transmitted either to the son or to the daughter, but uh, then the son can pass only to the granddaughter, not to the grandson. And we might expect that maybe there are different sensitive periods for boys and for girls. One hypothesis out there is that girls are more sensitive to the inutero period. Boys are more sensitive just before puberty. So epigenetics only happens in mammals with placentas and live births. And there are various animal studies. So people will uh, stress out rats. They'll starve rats. And uh, the rats will be bred with uh, normal uh, females. And then you can see what happens. Is there any evidence that uh, the rats, uh, the offspring of the stressed out rats are more stressed out themselves? And also, is there actually, once you kill the rats, it's, uh, yes, they're testing for DNA methylation and looking at sort of different rat cells. However, it is very hard to extrapolate some of these responses between species. I mean, we are not really that much like rats, even though we can learn something from rats' experience. So we really need to look at human studies. The problem with human studies is we have to disentangle the biological factors, the psychological factors, and various cultural factors. So one of the reasons that people have been looking at third generations is that's sort of one argument. It's like, well, maybe the grandfather has less of an effect. Of course, if you're talking about a remote area of Sweden, it's not clear that's going to be true. <laughs> And another difficulty some of the studies have had, its lifespans are often incomplete, and as I mentioned, samples can be small. So why Civil War POWs? The 7% of soldiers ever imprisoned is quite large. In World War II, the Korean War, it was much smaller, so less than 1%. This was a well-defined and a very big paternal health shock. So this men were reduced to walking skeletons. An advantage of Civil War POWs is I have complete lifespans. I have detailed socioeconomic and family structure. 
there are large samples, there are clear control groups, and none of these pesky privacy issues. Everything is in the public domain, so I don't have to worry about uh, any IRB issues, and I can actually get a hold of the data. I've tried getting a hold of World War II data. It's really hard. <laughs> Now, my findings are going to be that there is paternal XPOW trauma, and it's transmitted to sons only. It is not transmitted to daughters. The mechanism is potentially epigenetics. <coughs> this XPOW trauma is reversible with adequate maternal nutrition. And although there is evidence in animal studies with mice that one can uh, reverse these effects with adequate maternal nutrition. I haven't seen any other studies in human population of this reversibility. And it's also uh, the first study to analyze the long-term impact of paternal XPOW status on children's older age mortality. My empirical approach is going to be very simple. <laughs> There was a time period when uh, being a POW was really terrible. This is, and I'm going to say this is men captured between July of 1863 and June of 1864. So when the Civil War breaks out, no one knows what to do with men to, who surrendered. So they're rapidly exchanged. and. Uh, some of these guys at the times were okay initially at the war. They might be POWs only for one day, and they start to be exchanged. Of course, if you exchange men, well, they go on to fight. So both sides start to keep these men. And they start to keep them longer. The exchange system breaks down as they argue over, well, what do we do with the colored troops? Do you re-enslave? the black soldiers. What about their white officers? Can they be hanged as the leaders of a slave insurrection? So, and prisoner exchanges later start again in December of 1864. I've truncated here with June because what I want to capture here is both times were terrible, but also this is when men, these are men who are captured here, so I don't want someone who was captured in December of 1864. I want someone who actually endured an amount of reasonable amount of captivity in really horrible times. And I can also compare men with non-POWs. What I can also do is, within a family, I can also look at same-sex siblings and compare children born before and children born after the war. The samples that I'm using to study POWs, there's both the original Union Army sample of both POWs and non-POWs. I'm restricting to survivors to 1900. I have the Andersonville oversample, and by construction, this just started out with survivors to 1900. In previous work, I've examined the veterans, and there I concluded that, yes, it's very important to distinguish POWs by the period of captivity. These are men with, uh, where the percentage of scurvy was noted in wartime records. For men who were captured between July 1863 and June of 1864, it's 23% in the regular Union Army sample, 29% in the Andersonville Hoover sample. Non-POWs, it's 11%. They were captured before July of 1863, 14% captured after June of 1864, 12 or 16%. So there definitely is sort of some sort of difference. What about the samples that I actually work with? Well, one of the things which I do is I'm going to be focusing on children born after the war, because that's if there is an epigenetic effect operating, it should be on children born after the war. If you restrict to children who live age 10, so originally we're sort of over finding, yes, there were some POWs who had no children, sort of 12% versus 9% for non-POWs. The number of children per 
whether it's non-POWs or POWs is roughly the same. Even once you impose the restriction, it's roughly the same. And then I'm looking at uh, children who live to age 45 and where I know they live to age 45. So that reduces sort of the sample somewhat more, so less than 5,000 and roughly 15,000. And uh, here I don't have everyone in the full 8,500 because when I started this work, those data still were not available. This is a collection that the cleaning is still in progress. What I'm very fortunate about in terms of being able to link veterans is the pension records are a really rich source of information. They're family circulars and they even provide daughters married names. And so, yes, you can actually follow the daughters and we can follow them quite well. So these are linkage rates for veterans and for children who were born after 1865. You will note that these are extremely high linkage rates. So 1900 census, it's what uh, 96% are actually linked to that census. 1870, 95%, 1930, 95% as well. And it's because we know so much about them, not because we have a better algorithm in order to find them. Again, with the children, it's going to be the same story. We know a lot about them. So if we know the child's year at death, well, for example, in 1910, 88% linkage rates. So compared to sort of standard linkage rates in the literature of about 22% when you're dealing with very little information. We have cause of death, we have death record information for 74% of the sample. And suspect that, uh, yes, our census linkage rates are lower if uh, the child probably was dead in those cases. What determines linkage to death records? This is the US. <laughs> death records are all by state. Some state records are not available online, and sometimes some children may have died before the death registration system was established in that state. Paternal characteristics don't explain the variance in linkage rates. And uh, it really is, seems to be, it's uh, a lot of it happens to be, okay, what state are we dealing with? In terms of how do these data compare to, say, life tables, so this is the veterans' children's sample, looking at fathers, looking at mothers, comparing with life table estimates. It's, uh, it's pretty much what you would expect comparing genealogical data with life table data where you have, where the life table data are more urban and have many more immigrants. If you look at the children, well, one of the things which you'll note is when you get to sort of older ages, and the reason I look at mortality after age 45 is because I think I am missing a lot of the mortality prior to those ages. Simply a lot of the children would not have been recorded. What did these children die of? Well, I have uh, causes of death for only a relatively small part of the sample. Before, I used to have only for 25%. I've now upped it up to close to uh, 30%. This is cause of death. So you see cerebral hemorrhage, gastrointestinal cancer, cardiovascular, etc. Selected variables by POW status. It's, uh, yes, we have slightly more uh, sons than we have uh, daughters, but we're still doing rather well on the daughters. I don't want to draw any inferences at all about POW status and 
sex composition. I don't think that can be done with these data. And one of the things which will jump out here, it's uh, if you're an XPOW, when times were pretty terrible, if you look at the years lived for sons, it's um, So it's 71.68%, 72.82%. This is looking at, these are Kaplan-Meier survival estimates for sons. These are years lived after age 10. It's the Union Army sample. You know, most of the action actually happens at older ages, so age 45 plus. The green line is POWs, no exchange, and you'll note, yes, they are shorter lived. Looking at daughters, there's no difference by paternal POW status. What I then do is, okay, I want to control for a lot of characteristics. No exchange POWs were slightly different. They were less likely to be farmers. They enlisted at somewhat different uh, times. So I'm going to be running a lot of Cox proportional hazard models. I'm going to be clustering at the family level. And I'm going to be stratifying on enlistment here. So basically looking at just interacting POW status, doing an interaction with uh, whether or not the child is female, and adding a lot of control variables. So controlling only for pre-enlistment pre characteristics of the father and whether or not the father was wounded in the war. Among sons, they were 1.11 times more likely to die at any age after age 45 if dad was an ex-POW when times were really terrible. There is no effect on uh, XPOWs of dad being an XPOW when times were okay. And this is all relative to being, to the father being a non-POW. If you look at daughters, no effects. If I want to look at families with sons or daughters born before or after the war, the sample is much smaller. So I've only got uh, 855 daughters of 275 fathers, uh, somewhat more than 1,000 sons of 342 fathers. And here I'm going to be interacting uh, POW status with uh, whether or not the child was born after the war. Looking at uh, hazard ratios, it's uh, here again, you see for sons, really big effect of the father being a no exchange XPW, so 2.23. For uh, the daughters, you don't see it. So comparing this with uh, paternal and maternal effects, this is the mortality of the veteran fathers years lived after 1900. So with the veteran fathers, if they were a no exchange XPOW, 1.14 times more likely to die at any age. For their wives, the children's mothers, there is no effect. How big are these effects? Well, they're about as big as the father having enlisted in a large city, where, of course, the large cities were extremely deadly in this time period. And it's also somewhat comparable to, say, having a father who was a laborer relative to having a father who was a farmer. What are the mechanisms? Well, we can add, one of the things I do is I add controls for uh, paternal socioeconomic status. In 1880, I can look at uh, 
paternal personal wealth in 1870. I can directly examine the impact of paternal XPOW status on socioeconomic status and education. I can look at it as the child in school in 1880. I can look at education among survivors to 1940. None of this actually matters. I can also look at family structure. I can add controls for whether the child's married in 1910. I can directly examine if there's a direct impact of XPOW status on paternal or child family structure. Again, nothing shows up. So here, what you have is the original column one, original hazard rate of 1.110 and column two and three just add additional controls. So there's really no difference. And no difference for lots of other variables. So why isn't there an impact on socioeconomic status? This could be something that's peculiar to this time period. If we think about uh, the schooling, formal education might not have been that important back then. It's uh, sort of the ability to master advanced concepts may not have been as necessary. However, it's also possible that some of these health effects were what we might think of as latent variables. They didn't manifest themselves until later when men reached middle-aged and by then socioeconomic status was already formed. Other possible mechanisms, well, they're psychological and cultural. So are the sons of paternal POWs more likely to die from accidents or suicides? No, they're not. It's uh, suicides are actually a very, very small number in these data. And including for fathers, even fathers who did not marry and went on to have children, this is not a population where you have suicide. And so I am going to be looking at some, looking at uh, some time until causes from specific causes of death. I don't find any impact on family structure. So I'm not presenting here the suicide numbers, but I'm looking at hazard ratios of deaths by cause. Cerebral hemorrhage is a big one, and the numbers are small, but maybe also gastrointestinal cancer. Another potential mechanism you might worry about is marital selection. The mothers have been linked to their 1850 and 1860 childhood households. So we know paternal real estate wealth in those census years. And we also know paternal personal property wealth in 1860. I'm just going to be presenting results from a quantile regression, looking at the 50th quantile, and particularly interested in post-war marriages. So this is looking at personal property wealth for post-war marriages over here. Nothing for XPOWs. However, if the veteran was wounded, that was bad in terms of uh, he was the uh, woman he married was less, came from a household with less personal property wealth. And it shows up also when looking at all marriages too. Most of it is driven by the post-war results. This is perhaps what you might expect in a manual labor society where wounds were clearly a sign of disability. So what are some of the mechanisms? I'm going to argue that one reason I think it may be epigenetic is what I observe is very consistent with what we know about epigenetic effects. So the causes of death sort of are kind of consistent with studies of paternal starvation in mice. And in addition, in uh, mice, we also find uh, evidence that with maternal nutritional supplementation of methyl donors, you can reverse these effects. 
So how do we actually measure adequate nutrition? I'm going to use season of birth. If we look at non-POW fathers, for the daughters of non-POW fathers, there's somewhat this J shape where you have sort of a being born in the second quarter of the year was bad. For the sons of uh, non-POW fathers, being born in the second quarter of the year also was bad. The shape is somewhat different. What I observe in my data are also consistent with what's observed in data about the European nobility as well, both the, uh, and the sex, including the sex-specific patterns. These are data from uh, looking at, so the dark lines are the hazard ratios that I obtained for non-POWs in terms of mortality by looking at month of birth, and the colored lines are looking at the price of various types of foodstuffs. So there's all food, there are farm foods, and uh, there are different indices. There's the Warren-Pearson index, there's the all food index. This is for livestock, this is for grain, and this is for fruits and vegetables, though fruits and vegetables, there are dried peaches in here, but that's pretty much all you can get. Most of the fruits and vegetables are potatoes and uh, things we tend not to think of as really fruits and vegetables now. And uh, there's, of course, a lot of cured and salted meat and lard. So yes, it's uh, kind of the pattern we observe is consistent, particularly sort of with some of the all food prices. So what is quarter of birth measuring? Well, maybe it's the availability of methyl donors. So though, of course, fresh fruit and vegetables are unavailable in the price indices, but we would expect that at certain times of the year they would be more available, and this would affect the children that are born in the fourth quarter of the year. It could also, however, infectious disease is also a possibility. There are viral diseases in the summer, there are viral diseases in winter, and uh, there also might well be differences by social class in when people marry, which affects, which will have its own independent effect of mortality. If you look at social class and uh, quarter of birth, this is looking at families with multiple sons. I'm looking at non-POWs. I'm looking at all. It's a month of birth. There doesn't really seem to be a difference between social class and month of birth. If it's disease, you'd think that quarter of birth should have a greater impact in denser areas, but it's, uh, we don't really observe that. So these interaction terms don't yield anything. So what I'm going to be doing in terms of looking at the mechanisms is I'm going to be interacting the POW status with quarter of birth. The second quarter of birth is the worst one. And what I find is that there's a statistically significant impact of paternal POW status, sort of only among the sons, sort of really, who were born in the second quarter of birth. And for those lucky enough to be born in the fourth quarter, sort of the POW effects wash out. If you wanted to tell a story that the father is venting his trauma as a POW on his sons, but not on his daughters, it would have to be a pretty convoluted story because, okay, he's only venting on the rents of the litter, where uh, if he was a no-exchange POW, they were 1.2 times as likely to die in any year after age 45. So pretty large effect. And this just shows smoothed hazard ratios looking at uh, doing looking specifically by month of birth. 
So mechanisms, it's, I'm going to argue, most consistent with epigenetics. And also maternal interaction effects are particularly important. So what can actually explain this? Well, if we're going along sex-specific effect, transmission on the Y chromosome, now we know relatively little about how epigenetic programming happens in utero in humans. We know that with the zygote, there is this period of global demethylation, which happens in two waves. After that, there's remethylation. However, some studies have found that there are hot spots that are not demethylated and that remain in the second or even the third trimester. If you're looking at uh, male mice, <coughs> they have primordial germ cells. Yes, they undergo extensive epigenetic <coughs> reprogramming in late sort of equivalent to third trimester gestation. But if there is inadequate maternal nutrition, then this delays or impairs this remethylation <coughs> in mice. One potential explanation is if the mother is malnourished, then there are more and more demands on her. The demands are greater in late gestation, and this is going to be a particularly susceptible time. So, oops. Okay. This is not my slide. This is uh, from Randy Jurdle. And Randy Jurdle has done a lot of experiments with uh, agouti mice. So yellow agouti mice are obese. Brown ones look like normal mice, and they're much thinner. So what you can do is you can feed sort of uh, these yellow mice, kind of you give them a controlled diet, and you can supplement sort of the diet of uh, the mother with folic acid, vitamin B, and you end up getting more mice that look brown and that look normal. And another study found that, well, there's sort of, if you look at the distribution of coat colors, there's a controlled diet. Then if you look at dietary supplementation, with methyl donors, okay, you get more brown-coated mice. But then, if you give the mice an endocrine disruptor, so NPA uh, exposure, you get many more fat yellow mice. But then, take your BPA exposure mice and you give them a methyl donor supplementation, then you're back to looking like the controlled diet. So these effects, <coughs> epigenetic effects, are reversible. Mm. Food is medicine. This is, as I mentioned before, this is a, these sex-specific effects are consistent with some other studies that we observed. So there's the study from Uber-Calix. There's the Uppsala multi-generation birth cohort studies. And in mice, there's a bad paternal, again, in some studies, a bad paternal diet or stress affects female offspring, but uh, some of these studies also allow this for maternal compensation, so much more maternal licking of certain mice. Now, one of the other things which I think may be going on as well is we tend to think of in utero and age zero to two as critical periods. A lot of the, epi, so the epigenetic studies have emphasized pre-puberty, but age 17 to 18 may also be a critical period. And Olaf Bygren, who's been, who did the over-Calix studies and is now working with a different Swedish sample, told me that what he's observing is, okay, age 17 to 18 is this critical period. So I went and looked at my data. And yes, if you look at the hazard, it's almost 1.4, looking at the hazard ratio. 
Here the father is a no exchange XP of W relative to a non-P of W. And this is, this is looking at men who were 17 to 18, and they were all at risk of being prisoners of war. So the comparison is being a POW when times were really bad compared to other men in the army at age 17 to 18. If you're looking at other age groups, same type of uh, story, you don't see it. Maybe there's something going on at older ages, but the confidence intervals are too wide, we can't tell. And this here again, it's, this is the father and no exchange XPOW, but this is relative to an exchange XPOW, but you see the same type of pattern there too. So what is the shock that I'm looking at? Is it paternal malnutrition? Is it the stress as you're contemplating your own uh, mortality in this horrible con conditions? Or am I simply mismeasuring paternal SES? Um, I suspect, just based on the animal studies, that they do, Myra's findings seem to be most consistent with a story of paternal malnutrition rather than just uh, paternal stress. Though, of course, both effects could be operating. The issue that I worry about is, is this all a figment of my own imagination? How to avoid the trap of, if they ask you anything you don't know, just say it's due to epigenetics. And a couple of ways. One is look at other shocks. Severe wounds was another shock. Severe wounds affect the longevity of both daughters and sons. There are bigger effects on daughters, and it affects the longevity of children born both before and children born after the war. So at least I'm not seeing epigenetics everywhere. But this may not be enough evidence. So in future research, what I plan to do is try and shore up some of the findings. So easy thing to do is, or well, maybe not so easy, it's kind of expensive, is obtain cause of death information, add additional POWs, get death dates of children of law, just to try and isolate more of a family effect. But other thing to do is also look at grandchildren and great-grandchildren of ex-POWs. And there are some living descendants. They're all very elderly, so this is going to be a race sort of between trying to get funding to uh, collect the data and versus uh, these people dying off because we're talking about 85 plus 95 plus year olds. And with saliva samples, one can actually test for DNA methylation. So I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. If I talk to people on the medical side of campus, they're all very surprised that I don't have a freezer that will store samples at minus 80 degrees. It's okay. <laughs> I'm looking, and another possibility, of course, would be looking at different cohorts. So, yes, sons of POWs, when times were terrible, had higher mortality effects, and the explanation looks <coughs> likely is epigenetic, consistent with maternal food deprivation. And the effects are reversible, again, consistent with epigenetic studies in mice. What are the implications for economic history? There have been some arguments about the past. So if we think of Floud at all, the changing body, although they are very careful to say they are looking at net nutrition, the book has often been interpreted as saying, oh, it's all about nutrition. Deaton argues that infectious disease is really the big thing that, was, that we should be looking at and which was important. So it's sort of been a bit of a food versus infectious disease debate, even though that's a gross oversimplification. Maybe, given these results, we need to renew the focus on food and also think about the various uh, things that have happened in terms of reduction of variance. Seasonal shocks have been have fallen. Trade has uh, enabled food. Yes, trade initially spread disease, but you also can get fresh fruits and vegetables. Storage as well is the other factor. What about the future? 
yes, we're guilty of overeating, lack of physical activity, smoking, chemical exposures. The good news is that there is reversibility with maternal nutrition and exercise. And if you're a health economist, then well, human behavior comes in again. It says you can think of, you can sort of graft the Grossman model onto the epigenome, but there is just going to be a lot of heterogeneity that's introduced here. And I'm just going to stop with this slide. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. If you've enjoyed this show, you can subscribe and find more episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate positive ratings and reviews because they help us spread the word about the show. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter at OxfordESH or email us at oxeshpodcast at gmail.com. The podcast was edited and produced by Penarit Anamuthana, Catherine Crossley, Julia Greening, Meredith Paker, and Alex Wolfers. Until next time, I've been Ben Schneider. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.